we certainly do appreciate all of our volunteers here that made that week just a, a spectacular week. So thank you for all those involved. That's just a small little taste of all that went on here all last week. But I'm glad you're here today, and uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't get to experience much of VBS this week, because on Monday night, I got so sick, I was basically dead to the world for the rest of VBS week. And uh, Tuesday morning, I was like, I told my wife, oh, I feel terrible, I, don't, I can't go today. Wednesday, I started having conversations with Jesus that went like this, Lord, we've had a good 46-year run. <laughs> I think it's coming to an end, isn't it? And then my wife's like, you need to get to the doctor. And I'm like, I think you're right. And then the doctor loaded me up with all kinds of medicine that I'm on right now. So I cannot be held responsible for anything that comes out of my mouth today, just to let you know. <coughs> That's not true. Um, I am on medicine, though. Um, and I am responsible for what I say. But uh, I may have to stop and take a drink of water, and I forgive me for that. I don't like bringing water up here, but, but it's not, it's, I may have to. But I, you'll just forgive me, but we'll get through this. The Lord will give me the strength. We are in the, uh, a series right now called Unearth, and we are looking at some of the, the, the greatest archaeological discoveries ever made, and we're seeing how those discoveries have come alongside the Bible, proving that it is historical, that the people and the place and the events in the Bible are true, they actually happened, they were real, and it just shows time and time again that archaeology is that the Bible is true. I'm holding in my hand right now a uh, piece of pottery that I got in Israel. And this piece of pottery, it's not worth anything. Uh, there's just, you know, a, a memory connected to it. But uh, this piece of pottery is 2,100 years old, you know. And um, where can you go today and hold something that's 2,100 years of age? I can't think of any place except right here at New Life. Makes us unique, right? So if you want to hold this later, you just let me know and I'll let you hold something that's this old. But I picked this up on an archaeological dig when I was in Israel at a place called Tel Marisha. And, and basically, uh, this place, I mean, it was awesome. Um, a lot of tourist groups do this. We were a tourist group. And uh, for a couple hours and for a couple bucks, you can team up with some actual archaeologists at an arch actual archaeological dig site and you can and help them start dig stuff up. I call it free labor for the archaeologists. But anyway, that's just how I take it. But it was a lot of fun, and we, we dug up this community that had been buried for over 2,000 years. And we were pulling up, I mean, what most groups do, they, they pull up thousands of pieces of this pottery, and they actually let you take some of it home. That's how plentiful all these broken pieces of pottery is. So we took some of the pottery home that we dug up. We did find some interesting stuff. Jackie Charles, member of our church, part of this group that we were on, she actually dug up this little piece of pottery. And this actually caught the attention of our archaeologists really quick because where we were digging, they didn't find stuff that had been with color and intricate designs on it. And so we did not get to keep that piece of pottery. I was like, like Jackie, put that in your pocket. Let's go, you know. And, and, and no, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I don't think Jackie came home with that. I think she had to leave it. There was another find that another lady in our group made, and she found a, a just dug it right up out of the ground, um, a full, a complete uh, vase, a real, real small little pitcher, and um, our archaeologist took notice of that right away. We did not get to keep this either, but um, it was missing the handle. It was missing the handle, and they told us, had that handle been on there, 
This would probably be studied for a little bit and then put on display somewhere. This probably would have been a display piece, but it was missing the handle and they took it anyway and uh, we wanted our money back. But anyway, I thought, is this like, is this like the diamond mines? Don't you get to keep what you find? Not, not exactly. I'm sure when we take another trip to Israel, uh, we'll do something like this again. It's just a lot of fun. It's just a small little taste of what it's like to be on an archeological dig site. And what I love about it is that archeology span like this just has a way of bringing the Bible to life. And, and it can energize all of our faiths uh, by reminding us that our faith, you know, what we believe, it's actually grounded in truth that you can see. And that's a good thing because the Bible is the most attacked book in the history of the world. It is good to be able to have, to have things that you can hold and handle as truth that you can actually see that my faith is not as blind as uh, what many people want you to assume. No, no, no. There is truth you can see, and that's a good thing because this book is attacked right and left. And what I want to do today is I want to highlight some very specific examples from the Bible that have come under attack in recent years and over the years. And I wanna show you how biblical archeology span has refuted those critics. And some of these harsh criticisms of the Bible, these critics have had to do a 180 and reverse their positions because of what they've dug up out of the ground. And I hope that these examples that I'm gonna show you today are gonna be inspirational. I think they're gonna be of great intrigue to you. I hope really though that you walk out of here going, yeah, I do believe this with all of my heart. I, I see it in the word of God. I know it's true. And that's what I hope this whole series does for everybody. Um, but before I get to some of these specific examples here in just a minute um, about how archeology span has debunked criticism, I do wanna say a word about criticism of Christianity in our world today. Um, specifically, the marginalization of our Christian values and our convictions and our principles, which are built directly out of God's word. To me, just the way I see it, the disrespect that is shown towards the Christian faith and the Christian community here in America is worse today than at any other time I can remember in my lifetime. And that is not a shocking statement. I think most of you agree with it. You've heard me say things like that before. I feel like the disrespect shown Christians today is at an all-time high. Um, it seems like every acronym that you can think of represents some organization or group today that um, has got a problem with what the Bible teaches and critical of those that practice Christianity. And all of that can evoke a lot of emotion. I know it does in me, and I know it evokes a lot of emotion in, in many of you. And I think about this marginalization and this you know, disrespect of our faith, and I want you to know something today. It may feel very strong. It may feel very fresh. It may have new names and colors attached to it. But let me tell you something. I feel strong about just reminding you of this. It is nothing new, okay? The criticism that we hear today and the, and the scrutiny, that we, it's nothing new. It's the same old criticism that the Bible has always been under. It's the same kind of assault that we've always come under. And it's on the same source that it's always been about, which is the Bible. When you strip all this away, the attacks on our faith or the perceived disrespect um, and scrutiny that we get as Christians, it's really not so much on us as much as it is on this. This is what it's about right here. And critics have been trying to disprove and discredit 
God's word since the beginning of time. You don't believe me? Open up your Bible to Genesis chapter three and I'll show you. Genesis chapter three, verse one, we see the serpent come up to Eve and what did he say? He said this to, the, to Eve, did God really say? Friends, there's been an attempt to discredit God's word since the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat from that tree? Did God really say it? God's word's always been the target. Because if God's word could ever be discredited, and let me just tell you, it won't be, and it can't be. People have been trying for years and years. They have been unsuccessful at it. But let me just tell you, hypothetically speaking, if God's word could ever be discredited, then, then the claims of the Bible can no longer stand. Do you understand? If the, if the word of God could ever be discredited, then the claims that this book makes will no longer stand. And if the claims of the Bible no longer stand, then everything that has been built on those claims, the highest values that set a Christian apart from the world, they will crumble. So the, the deception in, in the garden that Satan used, did God really say? Can you believe what God says? Is his word true? It's the same deception that he is still using in the world today. Did God really say? Because if you can tear down the Bible, you can tear down Christianity. It's not gonna happen though. It pains me when I see what feels like Christians in a growing number of churches falling for the same old deception in the garden. Did God really say? It pains me when I see it. Don't believe me? then just pay a little bit closer attention to how some churches are choosing to decorate their buildings and their flagpoles and their websites and their social media platforms this very month, and you'll know that you're looking at just one example of a deception. Did God really say? I'll tell you that the worldly system that we live under in this world, it will always be at odds with our Christian values. They will never line up they will never be in harmony with one another. Our Christian values are taught right here in the Bible. Tear down the Bible, eliminate the opposition, and that's why it is the Bible that has always been the subject of such opposition. So while I love biblical archeology span so much, and this field, of, if you couldn't tell, I really do like it, if, if you couldn't tell that. Whether I like it so much, is because archeology span all by itself has a way of refuting some of the Bible's harshest criticisms from its harshest critics. In fact, um, archeological evidence um, has caused many experts to, to completely take a step back from their strong positions. Here's how it goes down. It goes down something like this. Some educated person with a lot of letters behind their name and they sound really fancy and really smart, they will make some claim about the Bible that says something like this. That can't be true, that's false, and this is why this can't be true because we don't know this, we don't know that, and, and on and on. And they'll make such claims because maybe the only thing we know about a specific person comes from the Bible. And they go, well, we've got all the records of all this community and since the Bible names somebody that's not over here, what we know is, is history, then the Bible's fake. It's embellished. It can't be true. Now, those kind of criticisms get leveled at the Bible on a regular basis. But then something happens. 
At some dig site somewhere in the world, new evidence will come to light that confirms the existence of the very person they said didn't exist. Or a place that that person said that place doesn't exist. And all of a sudden, it does prove that it corresponds perfectly with the Bible and they have to do an about face and figure out something else. Such was the case with the book of Daniel. Are you familiar with the book of Daniel in the Old Testament? You're probably a little more familiar with it than what you might realize. Daniel contains some of the greatest Bible stories you're gonna read. Um, Daniel in the lion's den is in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace comes from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is loaded full of prophecy. Much of it has already come true. And critics for years looked at that and they'd said, there is no way that the book of Daniel can be written by a guy named Daniel who was living during the exile. No, 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 no. It's way too precise. There's no way. Somebody, obviously, hundreds of years later, who knew the history, wrote Daniel, played it off as if it was somebody that wrote it, you know, Daniel from the Bible, but no, they're pulling the wool over your eyes. There's no way. The book of Daniel has come under the authorship of it, has come under um, great scrutiny for many years. Now, um, this, one of the pillars that they, they base this off of comes from Daniel chapter five. And they point specifically to a king that's mentioned in Daniel chapter five. His name is King Belshazzar, are you familiar with Daniel chapter five? You got your Bibles, go ahead and open the Daniel chapter five. We're gonna spend a few minutes there. And I wanna show you something because this entire criticism of the authorship of Daniel and, and when it was, it all came crashing down when they made a certain discovery. But before we get there, let me tell you about Daniel chapter five. Daniel chapter five, um, starting in verse one, it says this, King Belshazzar, gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles <coughs> and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets, the cups, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might get drunk from them. What he's, <coughs> what he's referring to is, uh, is when the Israelites were hauled off into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar, they hauled away a lot of the temple treasures, a lot of these, these gold cups and goblets and, and things. So here, all these years later, uh, Belshazzar is like, hey, somebody go get all that stuff from the temple. You know the stuff that the Jews love? And let's, let's use their cups and, um, all the, and let's, let's just get drunk off of it. Friends, this is a great example of what it looks like to completely thumb your nose at God. You know, and you're like, oh man, how could they do that? Friends, our country thumbs its nose at God every single day. And, um, and Belshazzar's gonna learn the hard way. You don't thumb your nose at God, and I fear our country's gonna learn the hard way. You do not thumb your nose at God forever. That's another sermon. <laughs> but that very night, Belshazzar saw this. There was a hand that just appeared and it started to write stuff on the wall and it freaked everybody out and they couldn't read the message and they're like, how, how we gotta figure this out? And somebody thought, I think Daniel knows how to read this. And it's, if you jump down to verse 25, it says, <clears throat> they brought in Daniel and Daniel's gonna interpret the, the hand for him. And this is what Daniel says. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is the inscription that was written. Meany, meany, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Meany, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, 
Your kingdom is divided and given to the means and the Persian. In case you didn't know, this is where we get the famous phrase today. Hey, the handwriting's on the wall. Are you familiar with that? It comes, anybody said that? Hey, handwriting's on the wall. This game's over, you know, or whatever. Um, it comes from Daniel 5. Daniel 5 goes on to tell us that, that very night, King Belshazzar is killed and the city of Babylon is passed into the hands of the Medes. And for years, Bible critics have said, that story's bogus. And they choose to focus in on the reference to King Belshazzar. They call Belshazzar pure invention, a historical blunder. And uh, to the critics, they're like saying, obviously, somebody who was living hundreds of years later did not know the complete history of the Babylonian kings, and they made up this guy Belshazzar, and because that is not the last king of Babylon. We know who the last king of Babylon, and is not Belshazzar. So the whole thing is bogus. That has been the criticism. Um, I love what James Boyce said in his commentary um, on the book of Daniel. He says this, if you want to look very wise in the world's eyes and are willing to look foolish years from now, you can make a reputation for yourself by pointing out the errors in the Bible. But these things tend to become explained as time passes and the data from archaeology, historical investigation, numismatics, which is the study of coins, and other disciplines accumulate, these alleged errors tend to explode in the faces of those who propound them. Man, was he ever right. Did this ever blow up in their faces? All this criticism about Belshazzar? Let me tell you, they unearth, when all this criticism was going on, something called the Babylonian Chronicle Tablets. Currently, this tablet that you're looking at behind me, it's on display at the British Museum. And as they deciphered this ancient text, they realized that it's part of the historical record of Babylon's final king. His name is King Nabadinus. And so everybody's like, yeah, yeah, Nabadinus, that's, that's the last king. Belshazzar is made up. But what they weren't ever anticipating finding is that this is a, a detailed account of his last few reign, years of his reign, that uh, the final years of his reign, he went on a trip that took about 10 years, and he traveled to this, uh, this oasis town about 450 miles away called Timna, and, or Timma, and while he was away, he officially left the running of the country into the hands of his eldest son to be a co-king while he's away, and that eldest son's name is, and can't you read it right there? Everybody can read ancient text, right? It says Belshazzar. Interesting, isn't it? Here you go, you have a, an archaeological find, indisputable artifact that names the very king and explains why he was in the position that he was in while the critics are saying, this ain't true. That didn't lie. Oh, but it gets even better. A few years later, they unearth a clay cylinder in Iraq in the ancient city of Ur, and this is a clay cylinder that was a prayer written by King Nabodinus. You know, the last king of Babylon. And this prayer, okay, you can read that as well, can't you? It's a higher resolution, you can see it better. No, I can't, I can't read it either. I'm glad there are people that can. But this is a prayer of Nabodinus to his moon god called Sin. Isn't that interesting? His god was called Sin. And this is a, a prayer to the moon god Sin for his eldest son, Belshazzar. So as it turns out, Belshazzar was actually a real person. 
He was a co-ruler of Babylon on the night that Babylon fell and his father was basically out of town. It's interesting, if you look at Daniel chapter five, verse 16, <coughs> this is what Belshazzar said to Daniel that night. And he said, Daniel, I've heard that you can give interpretations and you can solve different problems. If you can read this writing, this he's talking about the writing on the wall, the hand. So if you can re read it, tell me what it means. I'm gonna clothe you in purple. I'm gonna put a gold chain around your neck, which is everything Daniel ever wanted in life. If you know anything about Daniel, no, he could care less. In fact, he told the king he can keep it. But then the king says this to him. And I'm gonna make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom, the third highest now, this is a little detail in the Bible that Christians and scholars have wondered about for years. Why would the king only be able to make David the third highest ruler? It baffled them. They didn't know. Why, why is this? Well, it's interesting. Now that they've unearthed these archaeological artifacts and they realize that King Nabodinus was in charge, he put his son in his place as co-leader. Because of that, Belshazzar cannot make him number two because that's what he was. He can only make him number three. Now, isn't that interesting? Even archaeological evidence is adding in minute details in the scripture. Like this is happening all the time. And let me, friend, let me just tell you: when this discover, when these discoveries were made, and you have a historical record naming the very person you said didn't exist, and we can't believe the Bible, guess what happened? They stopped saying it. They stopped criticizing Daniel chapter five and Belshazzar, and that is what archaeology is doing. It's fascinating. Let me give you another example. I would imagine most of us in here have heard of King David before, very well-known person in the Old Testament. This is the King David who was famous for uh, David versus Goliath. This is the same king that uh, was the subject of one of my sermons in our previous series in Botched when he sinned with Bathsheba. This was the king that was described as a man after God's own heart, reigned in Israel for over 40 years. You know, even Jerusalem is referred to, you know, part of it is referred to as the city of David today. And sometimes people just call all of Jerusalem the city of David. I mean, this, you cannot go to the Holy Land and not hear about David. He is revered. He is seen as their greatest king. This picture behind me is of a sculpture, the very famous sculpture made by Michelangelo in uh, between 1501 and 1504. And uh, this is, I mean, they've, they've made paintings and statues. I mean, it's, this guy's, you know, all over. This is gonna surprise you, I think. Did you know that before 1993, there was not any archeological evidence that David ever existed? And what I mean by that is everything, every detail that we knew about David came from the Bible. And so critics have often targeted David and they've said, you know what, you guys have embellished his life. We're not even sure that uh, the King David was a ruler like you said he was. And uh, one, one critic, um, very well-known critic of David, he said this, his name is uh, Philip Davies. He's a former professor at the University of Sheffield in England. I'm gonna quote him. He said, King David is about as historical as King Arthur. And the criticism of this and the, the skepticism is that David, David was nothing more than a religious figure and uh, political mythology. In other words, what they're saying is these are made up stories in the Bible and they're convenient stories that when Jews or Christians wanna make a point about something or get something done, they'll point to David to push it along. That's what they would say. Well... That criticism took a huge hit in 1993 
when a 3,000-year-old stone slab was discovered in the ancient city, in the ruins of, of Dan. It's in the northern part of Israel. And the inscription that you're looking at behind me, it mentions the king of Israel, and then it also says the house of David. The house of David. This right here, what you're looking at behind me, by most archaeologists would say this is a top 10 discovery of all time. Because for the first time outside of the Bible, there is an archaeological, you know, there's an artifact that proves that David was actually a real person. It's not just the Bible. No, there's a reference to him. I actually got to visit the ruins of Dan when I was in the Holy Land where this inscription was found. Let me tell you, this was a special visit for me to be at the actual place where this, this 3,000-year-old uh, stone was found. This is the ancient ruins of Dan. I actually took this picture. That guy in the green shirt was our tour guide. He was awesome, by the way. And, um, but uh, this was, I mean, for me, it was a special thing going, man, this is where, this is the exact location where you know, they verified outside the Bible that David was actually a real person. Now, I believed it by faith, and Christians for, you know, many, many years believe that too, but to actually see it um, is awesome. This was such a big discovery that Time Magazine even wrote about it. They said, I'll quote one part of it, they said, the skeptics claim that King David never existed is hard to defend. Now, just think about that. Time Magazine the skeptics who say that David never existed, that's hard to defend. Jeffrey Scheller, a reporter for the U.S. News and World Report, he said this about the discovery at Dan of this stone. He said, the fragmentary reference to David was a historical bombshell. Never before had the familiar name of Judah's ancient warrior king, a central figure of the Hebrew Bible, and according to script, Christian scripture, an ancestor of Jesus, been found in the records of antiquity outside of the pages of the Bible. Skeptical scholars had long seized upon the fact to argue that David was mere legend. Now at last, there was material evidence, an inscription, now catch this part, written not by Hebrew scribes, but by an enemy of the Israelites, a little more than a century after David's presumptive life. It seems to be a clear corroboration of the existence of King David's dynasty and by implication of David himself. These are two huge slam the door in the faces of the Bible's critics. Archaeology proved that Belshazzar was a real person. Archaeology proven that David was a real person. Not make-believe, not mythology, real people. Time and time again, the Bible has proven true. I've got one more example for you today, and and if you grew up in Sunday school, like kids' church, like I did, then, then this will definitely hit you uh, probably differently than somebody maybe hearing this for the first time. Um, are you familiar with the story of Jericho? How many of you grew up in church just like me and heard your Sunday school teachers? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, for those of you that may not be aware, Jericho was one of the most famous battles in the Old Testament. It's when, when God told Joshua to lead the Israelites out of the wilderness and to take possession of the promised land. If you want to turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter six, that's where I'm going to be for the next couple of minutes before we're done. This is the city that uh, God told Joshua, march your army around the city one time every day, and then on the seventh day, march around it seven times. And when you do that, the walls will fall 
and I will give you the cities. The details coming back to you. You might also remember that, that uh, Joshua sent spies into the city and they were held, they were protected uh, by Rahab. Remember her house was built up along the wall and then she was able to help the spies escape out of the city through the wall and up into the hills where they hid out for a couple of days. Do you remember some of these details coming back to you now? It says in Joshua chapter six, verse one, it says, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. <clears throat> the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men, do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns on the front of the ark, on, on, in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. To many of the Bible's critics, are like, nope, didn't happen. That story's too good to be true. Walls don't fall down, and cities, fortified cities, are not taken um, without a great battle or a long siege. So they're like, no, 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 this seems embellished. This is, this is make-believe, and friends, here we are once again. Archaeology is proving the Bible to be completely accurate in its details. I had lunch in Jericho one time. Have you ever said that? Yeah, I had lunch in Jericho one time. Actually, when we were in the Holy Land, um, uh, we did not have, believe it or not, we did not have Jericho on our, itiner our itinerary. And, uh, but we had a little bit of margin on the day that we were in that part of Israel. And uh, we're like, hey, we got a little bit of time here. Why don't we go a few miles into Jericho? There's a great place to eat. Our tour guide knew it. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And so we had lunch in Jericho. We didn't have a lot of time. <coughs> um, we did have a little time for a little shopping, priorities, you know. And, um, uh, but uh, as we're leaving the city, our tour guide goes, and if you look out this window, you're gonna see the ancient archeological site of Jericho. And I'm like, stop the bus! They didn't stop the bus. Uh, I, I was like, hey, can, can we go look at it? And he's like, well, he goes, there's really nothing to see there. Um, and he's right, the, the, the normal tourist is not gonna be very interesting. But to me, it would have been extremely interesting. And I will go back there one day. This is our bus looking out the window. And what you're seeing here, this is ancient Jericho, all right? This is what we're, we're pointing out right there. And uh, you, you can find better pictures of it online. That's the picture I was able to grab as we were driving by. But uh, archaeologists have been working on this site since the 1860s, off and on, um, little by little. And something you need to understand is that most archaeological dig sites look just like this. You know, you're talking about um, ancient civilizations that raised up, conquered, buried, raised up, conquered, buried. You, you, got, you got to dig, is what I'm saying. You got to dig down to get to it. So in Israel, you might be looking at what looks like a normal hill. And, and you, you may not even realize there's thousands of years of history buried under the dirt there. And so this is Jericho. Now I'm going to show you an aerial view that you'll get a little better understanding what you're looking at. This is what Jericho looks like from the sky today. So this area here is Jericho. Can you guys see it? Just looks like a big mound of dirt. You can see evidence of where they have excavated, dug trenches, and done different things throughout the years. Most of it's not touched. But uh, this is what Jericho looks like today. And one of the questions that get asked a lot of times, and they say, how could an army march around an entire city seven times in one day? 
And I always say, it's because they weren't marching around Kansas City, all right? (laughs) They weren't even marching around Bentonville. You're talking about a very small fortified city. This, the whole city of Jericho takes up six to nine acres, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly. What I'm telling you is you could leisurely, while even drinking coffee, taking time to take in the sights, you can leisurely walk around Jericho in less than an hour. So we're not talking about this huge, huge place, but that's what it looks like today. And if you look at Joshua 6.20, what does it say? When the trumpet sounded... The army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So there was actually a double wall that they had found, and the whole thing just collapsed. Bam, one shot all the way around the city. The wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Now, I could spend a long time talking about all these details. I'm gonna bullet point it for you really quick here. I'm gonna tell you what they found at Jericho, archeological evidence that, that cannot be disproven. What they have found, archeologists that have dug on this site for years, they all agree that there was a collapsing of the wall all around the city, a sudden collapse. Now, the secular archeologists would say, obviously there was an earthquake and they all just fell down. Well, an earthquake from God, that's what happened. You know, but they all agree. Now, what this guy behind me, this is actually a very famous archaeologist. His name is Dr. Bryant Wood, and he is an expert on Jericho, and he's dug there <coughs> many times. His field of speciality is he is a world-renowned expert in ancient Canaanite pottery. And I'm going, wow, how do you come to that as something you want to do for your life's work? You know, what do you tell that on the guy next to the airplane? What do you do for a living? I study ancient Canaanite pottery. Oh, okay, I'm going to read my book now. Um, <laughs> But he's fascinating to, to listen to, and he's got quite a few videos online. They're easily to access. I love listening to him talk about Jericho and, and other places. He's just a brilliant mind. But what he's pointing out, you can't really see it in this picture. Remember, the city is buried. But he's pointing at bricks. You know, the Bible tells us that the wall was made of bricks, and you have this whole landscape filling, cluttered with these ancient bricks from the wall that fell down. What did the Bible say? The wall collapsed and everybody went straight in. So Jericho, even ancient Jericho, was built on a hill like this. And so people lived kind of on the side of this hill and it was flat on the top. When the walls came down, everybody, remember the Bible said, you will go up. And so when these bricks fell, they just created a nice little path all the way around Jericho and the army just went up and straight in to the city. And the archeological evidence confirms that that's exactly what happened, fallen bricks all the way around the city that go up this embankment right into the city. Just like the Bible says, um, you know, the point of controversy as you read about this on your own is that no one denies that the bricks all fell at the same time Um, all around the city, but what they say is, what the secular archaeologists will say is, well, that all happened about 100 years before Joshua showed up. So it can't be the same event. The Bible embellished details. But the reality is they have found a lot of evidence that suggests exactly this happened when Joshua showed up. (coughs) One of those pieces of evidence is the fact that the entire city was destroyed by fire. What does it say in Joshua 6.24? Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. They put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasure of the house of the Lord. Anyways, they took the treasure, they took the gold and iron, bronze, all that stuff, but they left everything else and they burned it. 
And they have, they have tested this burn layer throughout the whole city, carbon-14 dating, and it takes them back to 1410 BC, plus or minus a few years, which is exactly when the timeline is for Joshua's um, conquest into the Holy Land. So that even verifies the timing of the Bible. Not only that, they have dug up these ancient baskets and jars full of grain, full of, of wheat and barley and dates and lentils. So the food supply in Jericho was huge. All these years later, they found evidence of this. Now, why is that an important detail? The Bible tells us, as you read the chapters leading up to Joshua 6, that this attack on Jericho happened at harvest time. In other words, the people of Jericho had just harvested all their crops and they brought them into the city and they have found all of these stored, all this stored harvest there in the city. What does that also tell us? It tells us that, that this was not a long attack. The Bible says it was seven days and they had the city. If it was a siege like a normal army, they would circle the city and they would starve them out. And then they would eat all their food. There would be nothing left. They would die of starvation. But no, 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 no. This attack ended after seven days and they burned the city and they left all of the harvest there, which also tells us something else, right? That for the most part, they obeyed God. When God said, don't plunder the city, don't take anything for yourselves, you burn it all. Why would an army as vast as the Israelites not take all of their food? Because God told them not to and all the food. So right here in the archeological evidence, all the food was left behind in this burn layer, and, and it's all from the same collapsed bricks, food left behind, burn layer that dates perfectly. Friends, the archeological evidence proves that the Battle of Jericho actually happened the way the Bible says that it happened. Now, did everybody obey God? Well, there was one guy that thought he could outwit God. His name was Achan, and he took something from Jericho he wasn't supposed to, but you go explore that on your own in the next couple of chapters. One final part about Jericho that I find really fascinating, and you may not know this. On the north side of the city, they found a portion of the wall that did not collapse, okay? Every other part of the wall, they've got evidence of a complete failure, and it collapsed, but there's this one little section where it didn't fall. And not only that, but next up to that part of the wall that didn't fall was the ruins of homes built right up to the wall. Now what part of the story does this remind you of? Rahab. Rahab, the one who hid the spies. Her house was built into the wall and who let the spies out um, to the hills. And that part of the, the city faces the hills where, the, where, the, uh, where the, the spies would have run out to. Friends, they, they found the part of the wall that didn't fall and homes built up to it, which can only be Rahab's home. I mean, it makes perfect sense. The archaeological record confirms what the Bible says. Rahab was spared because she hid the spies. And they said, go to your home. They would all have been killed if the wall would have fell down, but not her house. It's fascinating. Friends, the, the attacks on God's word started in the garden when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? These attacks on did God really say have never stopped. And I don't suppose they ever will. Uh, the archeological discoveries that we have looked at so far is just a very, 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 very small sample of literally thousands of artifacts that have been unearthed, that have led to so many people, myself included, to trust the Bible. 
It's reliable in its historical record. It talks about real people, real places, real events. And this is my understanding of my own research that of all of these amazing discoveries that have been made, it is estimated that less than 1% of the material available inside these ancient archeological dig sites is still yet to be excavated. In other words, less than 1% has been pulled out of the ground. 99% of it is still buried in places like Jericho and many other places. So, I cannot wait to find out what they pull out of the ground in the future. It is a truthful statement. Not one shred of archeological evidence, not one artifact has ever been unearthed that disproves the Bible. In fact, there's secular uh, archeologists that have set out to disprove the Bible and they become believers. Friends, archeology span has proven the Bible true and and when they dig up the other 99% that's still in the ground, which archaeology, if you didn't know, is painstakingly slow. You're talking about digging with toothbrushes and toothpicks. It takes forever to do it correctly. What they're going to pull out of the ground in the future is only going to verify further what the Bible has to say. And there's, if all of that we've talked about is found in less than 1%, man, what's still in the ground? Pretty exciting stuff. I'm going to end with this. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, in the New Testament, it talks about Jericho. It says in verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. God knocked those walls down, but it was the faith of the people. They fell by the faith of the people. God did it, but it was their faith they had to believe that God really said it. When God said to Joshua, you do this, you march around the city and the walls are gonna fall and you're gonna go straight in and I'm gonna give you the victory. They still had to believe it. Can you imagine if Joshua would have said, eh, I ain't doing that. You know how much water it takes to march an army around a city like that? You want me to gear everybody? I ain't doing that that I guarantee if Joshua would have had that attitude and the Israelites would have had that attitude, we would be reading a completely different story today. They still had to believe that God, what God said would come true. The very next verse says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, you know, the part of the wall that didn't fall and she protected the spies. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She had to believe that what the spies told her God would do would come true. She could have blown them off and said, I'm not, I'm not bringing my family into my house. I'm not gonna. She still had to believe it. She still had to believe it for her own salvation. I'm telling you guys this stuff because no matter what we pull out of the ground or how much I tell you, it comes down to faith. What is it that you believe not what I believe. I know what I believe. It's not what the person next to you believes. It's what do you believe? You have God's words. It comes down, do you believe them? Because if you believe them, then that changes the whole course of your life. 
If you believe God's words, if you believe and have faith that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again, if you believe that we are called to a higher standard, we are called to be holy people, and if you are called to, if you believe these words, you're called to believe and you can be sealed with the Holy Spirit and that you can be on your way to heaven. If you believe these words, it's called faith. And that's what really matters here. What is it that you believe? I'll come back to the final thing. Jesus said, don't be like the guy that just hears these words and does nothing about it. Be like the person that hears these words puts them in the practice. Because when you do, you're like the wise man that builds his house on the rock. The storms are gonna come, the winds and waves are gonna come, but it, your house will stand firm. Friends, you want your house to stand firm? If you wanna stand firm all the way into eternity, believe this. Lord, I just thank you for what you are teaching us through your word, what you've shown us through archeology, span but Lord, we know, we know that what it comes down to is faith. Your word is very clear. We're saved by our faith. Sure, salvation comes from you. It's your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace. But what you ask of us is faith. And Lord, we do have faith. We do believe. Lord, we believe that you lived, you died, you rose again. Lord, we believe you are coming back. Lord, we believe your words are true. And Lord, even on the things that we can't explain right now, we may not fully understand, we accept them by faith, Lord. The Bible proves itself true over and over again. And if what it says about Jericho is true, and what it says about David is true, and what it says about Belshazzar is true, why is not the rest of it true? It is. So Lord, help us to have faith like that. Lord, I pray for anybody in our church family that is struggling with their, their faith, still wrestling through some skepticism. Lord, I pray that you use these scriptures today to help bring them to a closer walk with you, a more authentic understanding, a more certainty about what they believe, what they've been told. Lord, I, I just pray you use this to help move us all down, uh, uh, further down this faith journey with you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus.